1: Welcome to No Dogs in Space, ladies and gentlemen. Why are you shaking your head at me like that? No,
2: nothing. I was actually looking at you with admiration. I, I think this is beautiful. This is perfect. No frills. <laughs> no <laughs> nonsense. We just get fucking to it.
1: We get right to the fucking point here. That's
2: it. I don't care about hello, my name is Carolina Hidalgo.
1: <laughs> no, don't give a shit about hello, my name is Marcus fucking Parr. Let's just... Do it now. We're doing it. Welcome to Extra Play, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, We have a flight to catch. (laughs) That's why. We do indeed. In fact, we're going to be doing another Extra Play from the road here in a couple weeks. It's going to be very special from a very special location. But this one is...
2: Are you going to say where it is? No, not yet. Okay, can I say it? Yeah. It rhymes with Hamchester. Okay, now
1: go. (laughs) Right now, we're actually recording this in New York City, which is highly appropriate because that's what this episode is all about. About this, is our little extra thing. This is something that we plucked from an upcoming series and have expanded for the pleasure of our <laughs> listening audience. <laughs> Thank you. Now, as many of you have already surmised from our frequent mentions of the topic, our next series, of which we've now recorded two parts, we've recorded two parts three. We're almost done. We
2: got one more part, and that is it. We're done. It's coming out soon. If you're listening to this now, then that means it's coming out soon after that. How soon is now? <laughs>
1: Soon, (laughs) The series, of course, is going to be on the seminal poet and singer Patti Smith. Now, what you're going to find out about Patti's story is that it is very much a New York story told mostly during those strange years between the folk scene and the punk revolution. It's
2: beautiful. Like 1967 to like 1974. That's going to be the period that we're going to really dive into.
1: Yeah. And it's a great period in New York City. I love in between periods of history. Now, we're definitely going to be talking about all the shows that Patty played for sure. But in telling the story that we're telling, we did only give the most cursory of glances towards Max's Kansas City, because we have actually talked about Max's as a venue quite a bit already on No Dogs in Space. But the thing about Max's Kansas City is that we haven't really talked about it as a hangout spot. Yeah. Because while the venue upstairs is where the magic happened, the hangout space is downstairs were where the spells were written, so to speak. Yes. So over the course of this extra play, we're going to talk about the back room at Max's, the place where the Warhol crowd held court, where Iggy met Bowie, and where Patti Smith first showed up on the radar of the cool kids in New York City. Now, as a music venue, Max's was indeed legendary. This was where the Velvet Underground would play their last shows with Lou Reed because I originally had it as just where the Velvet Underground would play their last shows and Carolina came in and well actually the shit out of me.
2: I am fun at parties. I'm available <laughs> for bar mitzvahs and weddings. <laughs> I will ruin your night.
1: <laughs> and it's also where the Cramps would play some of their first shows. Of course, after they had their unfortunate audition at CBGBs.
2: Well, you're not supposed to put in, like, what, new strings on your guitar or something? <laughs> Wasn't that the deal? And then they started crying. Yeah. And then Peter Crowley's like, okay, why don't you come to Max's, but can you please just, like, learn to tune your guitars?
1: <laughs> yeah, back in the 70s, they didn't have those fancy electronic tuners that we have now. It was very difficult. But perhaps most importantly, as far as Max's as a venue went, this was where the Stooges would do a legendary blood-soaked four-night run that would inspire the New York punk scene to come. But Max's was also much more than just a punk venue. You could also catch Bruce Springsteen, Bob Marley, Big Star. Yeah. Fucking Bonnie Raitt would play yeah. Max's Kansas City cool. sometimes. <laughs> and Max's also had folk shows featuring guys like this, Phil Ox, who is the dude Patti Smith opened for at Max's the first time she played the venue with guitarist Lenny Kaye.
0: Outside the window there's a woman being grabbed They've dragged her to the bushes and now she's being stabbed Maybe we should call cops and try to stop the pain But Monopoly is so much fun I'd hate to blow the game And I'm sure it wouldn't interest anybody Outside of a small circle
2: of friends
1: Pretty very Harry Nelson
2: Yeah, yeah, it does sound like the soundtrack of a nightmare. But <laughs> I mean that like in a good way. Yeah. How do I say that in a good way?
1: I think that's a fucking great way it's of putting like Bill it.
2: Bill Ox, Alice Cooper, Suicide. <laughs> I would put them in a compilation.
1: I would too. And yeah. then
2: children singing because that's always creepy.
1: <laughs> well, what made Max's so cool as a venue was that they also took a chance on the weird shit. If you'll remember, Max's was the venue that took a chance on one of our favorite bands, Suicide.
2: Oh, yes, yeah. yes, exactly. Just what I I, I knew this was going to happen.
1: <laughs> and of course, this is through the persistence of instrumentalist Martin Rev.
2: That's true. OK, so Suicide, as you remember, because we talked about them in our, our two part series like way back when. It's a two man group, pretty much. And it's Marty Rev and Alan Vega. And they're from New York. And I love their accents. Marcus, can yeah. you give me a.
1: Martin Reverby, and Alan Bermowitz. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> I love it. Esquire. You know,
2: they're, they're, they're the most amazing characters ever. So this is back to, like, let's go back, summer 1974, where Suicide, uh, Marty and Alan, they could never get in Max's Kansas City. No. Because it was actually very exclusive. They Like, if you don't look right, you know, you you can't get in. And what Marty Rev said was like, well, we didn't look the part because we were too revolutionary. <laughs> Which, you know what, is true. It's totally true. I'm going to give that to Marty. I'll totally give it. Yeah, it's like, how how do you, like, deal with that, like, you know, I was like, yeah, that's true, right?
1: Oh, no, that's absolutely true. Yes.
2: Like, you have to stand outside in a line and be screened, like, one by one. Like, someone, like, a bouncer will look at you. Like, sometimes it'd be Mickey Ruskin, the owner, look at you. And if you look good enough or weird enough or interesting enough, he'd let you come in or not. And then there's Marty Rev there with his big fro and his astronaut sunglasses. (laughs) and (laughs) tiny,
1: pointing out on the end. It looks (laughs) so cool. (laughs) And
2: Alan, who literally had, like, a weapon on him. He had, like, a huge bike chain just, Tied to his waist with his jeans, and he he looks like a really like a, a really cool Vato. Yeah, you know? he does. He, he did try to lean in towards the more, like oh. Hispanic, Puerto Rican, because he does look like like one of us. Yeah, but his uh, name is
1: Alan Bermowitz.
2: But you know what? Hey, good for him. <laughs> I never mind. If, if you want to make yourself Alan Vega, you go ahead, hilarium. <laughs> so, okay, it was very difficult for them to get in. But one of the bookers at Max's in the upstairs room where they held all the live music was a guy named Sam Hood. You see, Marty Rev had given Sam a five inch reel of their music, like this incredibly insane music. And and, and he was just waiting for weeks to hear back like, oh, when am I going to get booked? So finally, after like, I don't know, like six weeks or something, Marty was like, I need to get my tape back, you know? Like, I gave it to this booker and, <laughs> you know. Got one. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. A lot of times, especially back in the day when you're very broke, like those kinds of like reels or like little tapes, like you can only have a couple, so you give them out and a lot of times people would just mail them back to you. Yeah. Right, because you, you can't get a ton. So remember, Marty, he's flat broke. He wants to get his tape back, so he walks from his apartment in the Bronx all the way down to Union Square. Ugh. That's about a three, maybe four hour walk to Max's Kansas City to get his fucking tape back. Yeah. Right? And so he gets in there and he asks Sam, okay, so what do you think? You know, what day can we get
1: on? When can I bring my bicycle chain? Yes. And <laughs> that's Alan Vega. Okay, okay. Yeah. Alan's, he's got his bicycle chain. He wants to fucking whip it. He wants to whip it.
2: Yeah, maybe Alan's right outside waiting, smoking a cigarette. We don't know. Yeah. But Sam looks at Marty and says, sorry, man, I can't book you. No reason why. Although I think we know. Because remember, the owner of Ungano's who booked suicide said to them after like a night or two, like, sorry, you can't come in here anymore. Your music and your performance is like having 99
1: Iggy Pops in here. (laughs) It's too bizarre. Can we play like a little snippet? Yeah. And this is, by the way, this is suicide Polished, Like, then this is not what they at like. What they sounded like at the time was a fucking nightmare. This is what they sounded like polished. And this is 1977. To most people, this is the weirdest goddamn thing they'd ever heard in their life. And it was scary and I love it. And it's my favorite. It's Ghost Rider. Ghost Rider, motorcycle hero. He's looking so cute. Never get tired of it.
2: You know, this is like people want to hear like Bay City Rollers. (laughs) Right, you know, <laughs> they, uh, they want to hear point. the kinks, <laughs> yeah. but this comes on. It's not quite party music or it's a vibe music, yeah. but man, it is intense. So Marty Rev, as I said, he comes back to Sam Hody's like, you know, can I get my tape back if you're not going to book us? And Sam is like, yeah, sure. It's in here somewhere in my office. Let's go up and look for it. And so Marty's like, cool. I'll just sit here. Uh I, I got nothing else to do. <laughs> I just walked like three hours yeah. anyways. So as Marty was waiting, Sam was like busy working actually he was taking calls from like warner brothers and stuff and in between he was like maybe like shuffling papers around looking for this tape and marty was starting to nod off because he was exhausted walking for fucking three hours Mm -hmm. so he fell asleep in his chair his head hanging low like his arms to the side you know like uncle morris kind of thing (laughs) on game day yes and that's when sam hood freaked out he thought marty was dead (laughs) or like OD'd or something. He like, that must have been an overdose on drugs. Everyone was doing drugs. Quaaludes were a big thing at the time, it's right? 1974. Exactly. So Sam's like, I cannot have a dead body in my office. So he's like, kind of like slaps Marty awake and Marty's like, huh, what? And Sam just carefully walked Marty Rev to the elevator because, you know, he's like, I don't want a lawsuit on my hands. This is insane. And he said, okay, you're on (laughs) Tuesday night, Max's Kansas City. I'm going to regret this. (laughs) And I can just imagine Marty Rev just going outside to Alan Vega being like, yeah, I got us a gig for next week. I
1: I did it. I did it. (laughs) Me, Marty Rev, I got us the gig. Don't worry, Alan.
2: Never mind. They couldn't just get in the front door like, Last night, but this is, I mean, it's fantastic. And that is one of the many, many reasons why this venue is so fucking memorable.
1: Yeah, because Maxis Kansas City, after they got suicide on stage, they invited them back again and again and again. And Maxis was where suicide was really able to get their act together because right. they got kicked out of CBGBs.
2: Right, that, that was a whole bunch of stupid. But yes, <laughs> they did get into uh, Maxis Kansas City a lot, especially later with the new owner and the new booker. And that's when the cramps started getting booked as well, as we were talking about earlier, where the cramps kind of, they failed their CBGBs audition with Hilly. So Peter, the new booker, Was like, okay, I'll book Suicide and I'll book The Cramps. I'll book the two bands that no one wants to see because they're total like outsider kind of, you know, balls to the wall, crazy music on both completely different ends of the spectrum, which is fantastic. It must have been a great fucking night for music. It would have been
1: amazing to see that. That's one of my time travel shows. But of course, Max's as a music venue was an evolution of sorts that started back in 1965. It wasn't always just a fucking stage. It wasn't like CBGB's where you walk in and it's just a bar with a stage at the end. Originally, Max's was a restaurant located at 213 Park Avenue South, operated by a guy named Mickey Ruskin, who wanted to call his new joint something classy. (laughs) Now, Mickey had asked a friend of his named Joel Oppenheimer what to call this new joint because Mickey couldn't come up with anything good, saying he was thinking about something with an M name. Don't want to call it Mickey's, but I want something with an M name. Joel suggested Max's. Max's sounded good, but Mickey looked through the phone book and was like, ah, it's all Max's this. It's all Max's that. So many fucking Max's in New York. So Joel (laughs) gave it an extra push because this new place was supposed to be a steakhouse. And when Joel was a kid, all the steakhouses had a Kansas City cut on the menu because the best steaks were from Kansas City. So Joel told Mickey Ruskin to call it Max's Kansas City. Boom. Even though Lou Reed did say years later, that the steaks were fucking terrible.
2: All right, you don't say that to Izzy, right? <laughs> who was the cook. Yeah. Who would cook all the steaks. It was a weird thing that Mickey hired this guy who just got out of jail from a murder rap. <laughs> so you just say, these are delicious. <laughs> Mickey, <laughs> best steaks ever.
1: Best steaks in the world. Now, at first, Max has served as an art gallery for Mickey's artist friends. In addition to being a restaurant... These artists were given what were amounted to like Max's charge cards to barter artwork for food and drink that were used to wine and dine art dealers and critics. These bar tabs, of course, grew monstrous, sometimes reaching into the tens of thousands of dollars in 1970s money.
2: Yeah, they said it was like cheers but for like the ab ex people, yeah. which is abstract expressionist uh, artists or whatever, <laughs> you know, and then the pop artists started coming in like Rauschenberg, Lichtenstein, Warhol, of course, and uh, later photographers, poets, writers, uh, friendly boots went there every day for years. Yeah, She lived off chicken wings and chili like for years because it was one of those things ah. where I know. Like, <laughs> Remember, the steaks are great. The steaks are great. <laughs> if you buy a drink, you could eat for free. So people would just
1: stay there all day. Yeah, wasn't the big thing was chickpeas? Was that everyone else has got peanuts. I got chickpeas.
2: That was the thing when they're like, we're going to move some chickpeas. This is going to be real big soon. <laughs> real big. <laughs>
1: But since Mickey Ruskin had cultivated an art crowd, Max has became one of the hippest spots in all of New York City, playing host to artists and celebrities alike, from Jane Fonda and Faye Dunaway to Allen Ginsberg and Timothy Leary. And all of them are sitting next to Dennis Hopper and Abby Hoffman. It's a real meeting of the minds.
2: That's true. I mean, but to say curating is something like it goes both ways because Mickey Ruskin definitely took great care in selecting who was going to be and hanging out where, mm-hmm. which is also a a shitty thing to do <laughs> I think I would have hated it I would have you know, hated, I it, hated it I would have never gone there no. I would have had a protest I'd be like fuck you I'm gonna start my own place called uh, Max's Carolina City <laughs> whatever but like it was very selective and it was very like I, I don't want to say those were the times but in the sense it wasn't the way, like, you were a beautiful woman, you were uh, an artist, a model, or an actress, or whatever, they let you in, no problem. Mm-hmm. Anyone else, it's just going to be it's gonna be hard. It's, yeah, it's going to be very difficult.
1: Yeah, unless you're like Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix loved Maxis Kansas City. He said it's where you could let your freak flag fly. And, yeah, I bet you could, as long as you were a famous celebrity. <laughs>
2: yes, yes, mm-hmm. or a Maxist, yeah. if you want to call it that. <laughs> so, Maxis Kansas City is like, if you can just picture, like, a railroad apartment, it's just one big rectangle Rectangular like shape, right? Yeah. And the front room is where you walk in. That's where the bar is, right? The on the left side, and the booths are on the right. Because remember, this is New York City. We're tight in here. Yes. We don't spread out. We stay in and
1: close <laughs> together. Put the bathroom in the kitchen. Yes.
2: Across
0: America, BP supports more than two hundred seventy five thousand jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms.
1: Now, in the late 60s, the back room was truly where things happened at Max's Kansas City. And indeed, one of the biggest events in the art world had its genesis in that back room. Since the back room was where all the cool kids hung out, this was the room where Andy Warhol first met playwright Valerie Solanis, who would later become Andy's would-be assassin. As such, after Andy was shot by Valerie, he didn't hang out at Max's all that much.
2: Okay. He didn't get shot at Max's. No, he did not. No, okay. He just met her there. Yes, he got shot at his office, which is on uh, 33 Union Square West, which is actually one city block away. was <laughs> <laughs> actually right almost across the street. Yuck. But yes, that was a place where uh, you could see everyone and anyone, like the the back was just mayhem. Mm-hmm. That's what, what they always called it. Glenn O'Brien, you know, the guy behind the TV party, the public access uh, cable show that we talked about in the Beastie Boys series, mm-hmm. he said that the back room was the center of fashion, fucking art, music, fucking fashion, <laughs> art, fucking music, and so on and so forth, you know. And Iggy Pop also said coming into that room was like kind of like a, I'm not sure what the, he meant by this, a university of dementia. <laughs> I'm not quite sure where he was going with this, but...
1: I think that might have been during the years when Iggy Pop was just sort of beep bopping and scatting his way through most of, inter- most of his interviews. He's
2: pulling out pieces of glass out yes. of his chest. <laughs> That's possible. Very possible.
1: Yeah. It was a, a, a university of de- a dementia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But after Andy Warhol stopped hanging out, the rest of the Warhol crowd stuck around. And according to Warhol superstar Holly Woodlawn, she who came from Miami FLA and hitchhiked her way across the USA, there was a distinct hierarchy in the back room of Max's Kansas City in 1969. At the top, you had the Warhol crowd, people like Gerard Malunga, Billy Name, Candy Darling, and Holly Woodlawn herself. These were the coolest of the cool kids, and the ones who attracted all the rest.
2: There were so many, like Edie Sedgwick, Bridget Polk, Ingrid Superstar, Undine, Paul Marcy, Viva, Donald Lyons, Susan Bottomley, of course, Nico. (laughs) Nico. And many more, I can't even remember right
1: now. Could you scoot over and knit me into the boots? (laughs) (laughs) One chickpea, (laughs) please, one chickpea. Is this someone's jacket? Can I drape it on the back of the chair?
2: (laughs) I'll be right back. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, tangentially connected to the Warhol crowd was the Playhouse of the Ridiculous, led by Provocateur director John Vaccaro. He sometimes used Warhol players like the incomparable Mary Warrenoff, who later, of course, played the principal in rock and roll high school. Yes. She did a lot more cool shit than that, but that's just where most people know her from. Back then, John Vaccaro was a confrontational artist who showed that the spirit of punk began in New York long before 1976. He used visual devices like flipper babies, Siamese triplets joined at the anus, and in one case, an actor who constantly shat himself on stage while a huge papier-mâché penis hung out of his shorts leg.
2: Yes, this was not also at Max's. (laughs) (laughs) This is not... That would be a whole thing. <laughs> the mayor had ate there. I don't think the same day. That's <laughs> it's, it's wonderful. That's wonderful. I love art. I As love art. I. Yes.
1: As do I. Well, after the art crowd and the theater crowd, you had the music crowd, which was led by the so-called company freak at Electra, the prime mover of punk. Danny Fields.
2: Yes, the guy who's not afraid to get up and walk to any table. That's the thing about Danny Fields, because he knew that he was just like neutral color. <laughs> yeah, you know, kind of guy. You know, he could just get up and go around. He had no fear. And 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 he was nothing but actually very friendly, very intelligent and he knew his shit. Yeah. I mean, he still does. I don't he's he's still around.
1: Yeah, he's still around. Yeah, if you wanted to get yeah, the documentary Danny says is is wonderful, but he was the guy that was always bringing people in and he was the guy who was introducing everyone to everybody else. I mean, by 1969, the time period that we're talking about here, Fields, he'd already been responsible for getting the Beatles in trouble by publishing the Bigger Than Jesus line in a teen magazine article he wrote, and he'd worked extensively with Jim Morrison, although Danny and Jim fucking hated each other. That's one of the few people that actually didn't like Danny Fields was Jim Morrison.
2: Well, because Jim Morrison was a dick. Yeah. But that's, I mean, I'm not saying this in a condescending way. I'm saying this as a fact. (laughs) He was a dick. Like there was a time where like, I think Danny Fields told this story where Jim Morrison like had like a bottle of wine in the back room at Max's and then he decided to like unzip and pee a little bit in whatever was left in it. And then he handed it to a waitress and said like, that is superb wine. I left some for you. Like he's a troll. Oh my god. Like I I know. I know. And then girls just eat it up. I mean <laughs> Listen, I wouldn't be that smart either. But uh, but but it's one of those things like he kind of antagonizes a little bit so I can understand someone like Danny Fields after a while just being like I just can't do this yeah. anymore. <laughs>
1: But most importantly, Fields had been instrumental in signing both the MC5 and the Stooges after a trip to Detroit, way back when the Stooges were still called the Psychedelic Stooges and only had about 20 minutes of material. He could see far, far into the future. It's a guy with an eye. In fact, Danny Fields had been the man who had dragged Iggy Pop's lazy ass from watching a Jimmy Stewart marathon alone in an apartment to the back room at Max's Kansas City so he could meet David Bowie. And apparently, Bowie and Iggy, from what Bowie said, they just sat there and stared at each other's eye makeup.
2: I know. He's like, Did you see Mr. Smith goes to Washington yet? <laughs> Well, I haven't.
1: (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Well, I probably fucking would have if this asshole wouldn't have come and fucking brought me here.
2: And then they became friends. And then there's a little Berlin period that we all love. Of course.
1: I mean, that's the thing is after this meeting between Bowie and Iggy, that's what led to Bowie, quote unquote, producing Raw Power. Uh, And of course, it led to The Idiot, you know, some of the best albums ever. And that was Danny Fields bringing these two guys together in the back room at Max's Kansas City. But in the back room of Max's, you also had more people in the background. You had people there who weren't sitting at the cool kid tables, but would nonetheless go on to do some great things in the music world. Debbie Harry of Blondie was famously a waitress at Max's, but less well-known is the fact that there was also a country singer waiting tables alongside Debbie. That woman, known both for her collaborations with Graham Parsons and for her solo works, was Emmy Lou fucking Harris. Uh story—that's how this fucking show. What's what it does to us is yeah. it, these, it just spiders out in these little things, and then you want to know like how did Emmy Lou Harris end up at Max's Kansas City, and then you eventually then we
2: look it up and then we have to tell you guys we can't help it.
1: Yeah, and then it's a six-part series on Emmy Lou Harris. But outside of the waitstaff, there were also people just hanging out at Max's that nobody knew who they were. Specifically, I'm talking about a couple of art kids who just started showing up only to hang out with each other. These two art kids were the now world-famous photographer Robert Maplethorpe and Patti Smith. See, this was 1969, before Maplethorpe was even a photographer and before Patti Smith even wrote poetry, much less made music. Back then, they were just two hard scrabble kids living together in a former junkie's apartment in Clinton Hill in Brooklyn for, what, 80 bucks a month?
2: Something like that.
1: And Robert was trying to find his way into the New York art scene.
2: Yeah, they were like 19, 20 years old at this point.
1: Yeah. So hearing that Max's was the place to be, but being too shy to go by themselves, Patty and Robert were escorted to Max's by a filmmaker named Sandy Daly, who would soon after make a short film featuring Robert Mapplethorpe getting his nipples pierced called Robert having his nipple pierced.
2: It's exactly what you expect it to be. And you'll watch, it's on YouTube, you can watch it. It goes on for a while, but don't worry, the first couple minutes pretty much tells the story. <laughs> and, and it has Patti Smith narrating over it. It's, it's, it's pretty interesting. I'm glad it exists, let's just say that. It's not on
1: repeat. As do, as do I. I'm, I'm happy that it was made. But instead of mingling, Patty and Robert sat by themselves night after night at Max's Kansas City in that back room and never said anything to anyone. They barely even talked to each other. Instead, they sipped on Coca-Colas and watched, just waiting for something to happen. See, Patty Smith and Robert maplethorpe they were a confusing couple to all the Max's regulars. Danny Fields and the rest, they couldn't figure out, like, were they lovers? Were they siblings with an unhealthy attachment to each other? Because they did very much look alike
2: yeah because everyone back then especially in the back room everyone wants to get into everyone's business Mm -hmm. especially the whole who's doing who Mm -hmm. everyone loves that kind of stuff and lucky for patty and robert they were interesting enough to talk about and robert and patty together they as you said what are they Mm -hmm. they exuded all kinds of let's say, sexual possibilities. <laughs> and Danny Fields is the man to know because he was a journalist. He started out as a journalist. He's uh, like, I'm going to ask the hard hitting questions here.
1: <laughs> but no matter what they were, they certainly made an impression. And particularly, they caught the eye of Nico. Nico. About Patty during this time period, Nico said, quote, She was skinny like a rat, but she was from New Jersey and so was Lou. <laughs> so that was all right. She didn't speak much. She just stood and watched the people.
2: Oh, Ludes from Long Island, but you know she's <laughs> German. She doesn't know the difference. I, I, I love Nico. We we've done Nico's voice. Nico. Oh yeah. no, because it was she was roommates with Iggy Pop for a little while in the Funhouse, yeah. And that's what began our little, especially during lockdown, where we pretended Nico was our roommate <laughs> <laughs> because we didn't we couldn't hang out with our friends, you know, and be like Iggy. You need to dry your feet before you step on the bath mat. It's moldy now. That kind of stuff. Like, like, Iggy, pick the 5G Wi-Fi, not the 2G. (laughs) You know, we did it all day.
1: It was a very long period of time where, yeah, Nico was the third roommate in the house. Don't forget to wipe off all of the groceries after coming home from the store. I have an early meeting tomorrow at (laughs) Zoom. We don't know yet how COVID transmits.
2: <laughs> Nico is very, very concerned at that
1: time. <laughs> but since Danny Fields obviously had the sharpest eye for cool out of everyone in that back room, he was the one who finally went over and said hi to Patti Smith and Robert Maplethorpe after the pair had spent six months cultivating the appropriate air of mystery. And after Danny said hi, the rest, as they say, is history. And that history will be covered extensively on our upcoming series about Patty Smith.
2: Yes, coming soon.
1: Coming goddamn soon. Coming soon. Yes. Next week? Nope. But soon.
2: Yes, exactly. And very quick. I checked out a couple books and we got a little bit of help. Uh, suicide No Compromise by David Novak. Definitely fantastic read. It's about suicide. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, they also talk about all the New York City venues. It's great. And also High on Rebellion, Inside the Underground at Maxis, Kansas City, which is the book about Maxis, Kansas City. Yeah. It is long. It is an oral history. It's fantastic. It gets a little repetitive about like who was sucking who and, <laughs> and, and drinking on over and under the table with whatever. But it is a really fun read. It's very exciting. Put it in your bathroom if you like. By Yvonne Sewell Ruskin, who's Mickey Ruskin's widow. Actually, and she, Yvonne, actually had gone on when she eventually did get back the trademark name, Maxis Kansas City, did go on to start a, a project like a charity for any kind of artists, especially young artists like teenagers and help if they need anything, especially during COVID. Kind of they get like extra grants and stuff like that and, wow. and, and just promote like classes and everything. It's it's pretty cool. I, I'm not sure how how engaged they are these days because of all the crap has been going on. Mm-hmm. But it's really, really cool and it's really fun to see like that kind of stuff coming out.
1: Well, it's a great legacy. Yeah. Well, thank you all very much for listening and we shall see you all in two weeks from manchester
2: hamchester yes because we're going to talk about all kinds of stuff it's going to be oh we're leaving now okay sorry (laughs) we got to catch a plane
1: (laughs) (laughs) we do have to catch a plane thank y'all much for listening and we'll talk to y'all soon goodbye everybody thank you goodbye This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com.
0: Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio... And producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful?